Hello and welcome back to this H.P. Lovecraft book club uh, in which we're going through all the, the works of H.P. Lovecraft that we can get a hold of. And in this episode I'll be continuing to look at the second volume of the selected letters of, of Lovecraft. I'm primarily we'll be looking at the letters written between October 26th and February 1927. So um, so this is still the period not long after his return to Providence from New York. So that is still on his mind. It's a period of time in which he's writing The Call of Cthulhu um, and other kind of fairly memorable and important stories of his. He's working with Houdini on some debunking stuff. So professionally, it's, it's kind of an interesting period for, for Lovecraft. He's also spending a lot of time uh, doing kind of excursions and looking into his family history and things like that. Uh, in the area around Providence, so he's he's kind of reconnecting to Providence and seeing in in you know in in fresh ways. So, anyways, let's just jump into this selection of letters. As with the other episodes, I'm going to look at at around 20. This was just uh, the reason I did that is just I broke up the number of all the letters into you know counted how many letters there are and kind of divided it up into a reasonable amount of, of episodes. So anyways, and then like, like before, we'll, we'll look at some in more detail than others, just based on how long they are and, and what they have to, to offer for us. So the first one is uh, Clark Ashton Smith, October 12, 1926. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Smith letters tend to be very professional. They tend to, uh, you know, talk a lot about Smith's own work and Lovecraft's uh, fondness for for his work and, and kind of how he, he saw what Smith could provide and contribute to this kind of broader Arkham cycle that he was creating. So they, they tend to be fairly professional though, and this is no exception. Uh, one note though is there is a discussion of, of Wandry, um, uh, of course, very important in the later development of kind of the Lovecraft uh, mythology and all that, but um, you know, just, he found that Wandry is fairly promising in in the realm of fantastic literature. Also talks a little bit about Derleth and, and suggesting Smith contact Derleth. Um, Lovecraft is often trying to do this kind of matchmaking, especially with Smith. I think he really thought Smith was underappreciated and, and tried, to, tried to give as many contacts as possible. As for Lovecraft's own work, he mentions uh, he's continuing revisions on supernatural horror and literature. This essay has taken him a really long time to write, going through a lot of visions, doing a lot of reading. Um, when we get to it, I just think we should appreciate just how much work Lovecraft put into that. And it wasn't all just from his head. He really did a lot of original research uh, and a lot of reading uh, as he did that. Um, like famously, he came across uh, uh, Robert W. Chambers only after like researching him for this for this article, of course. So he talks about that a little bit. He talks about a couple new tales he wrote. One of these is definitely the Call of Cthulhu. I'm not sure what the second one was. Maybe it's he, something like that. Um, who knows? And then he also talks about his his work on with with Houdini, which I think is really kind of interesting stuff. Um, I wish I'm hoping to get a hold of those articles if I can, because he was ghostwriting for Houdini, not just under the pyramids, um, but also. Also, this kind of debunking stuff, this this 
anti-psychic um, work. What is it right? I don't know when I shall write any more, since just now I'm virtually driven to death by some extra revisionary work for the well-known conjurer Houdini, which I don't feel financially justified in rejecting. As for the history of weird art, I only wish someone would repair something of the kind. Unquote. Um, and so he's saying here, he's writing about the history of weird fiction, and he thinks you know maybe Smith could be the one who might be able to write a history of, of weird art. It's really kind of uh, teasing him with that um, suggestion. All right, next we have a, a letter to August Derleth, uh, dated October 19, 1926. Uh, not much here, so it's a very, very small segment of a longer letter um, where he's talking about Saw City. Because um, that's where Derleth, Derleth's in Wisconsin. Um, Saw City, Saw County, of course, being the location of Sand County, like the Sand County Almanac is based on that. Is, is said in that that area an important work i'm reviewing that in my 100 pages podcast uh, around the same time the works of aldo leopold um written much later than this stuff but um and and what lovecraft says is how he prefers sea towns uh this is fascinating to me because he does have a bit of hydrophobia i think you know and it's like a lot of his monsters come from the sea and it's fiction but it seems personally he really cared for the the sea towns i don't know if it's their history their connection seeming connection to that kind of anglo-american world i think that's some something to do it as well he says um i can picture nothing more delightful in america than one of the quaint colonial seaports of new england coast which have been sleeping almost unchanged for a century or more that's why he likes them he likes them for their antiquarian um potential that they're basically a place in american history tied to the sea and therefore tied i think ultimately to england and and he says his favorite of these is marblehead um, which i think we already know we've talked about that before uh, next letter is to frank belknap long um a little bit longer here uh dated october 26th 1926 he talks about some professional things here like his revisions for who uh, uh, for Houdini that he's been working on. He also talks about the rejection of the Call of Cthulhu. Obviously, Call of Cthulhu would eventually be published, but it was rejected um, first. It says, uh, Little Farney rejected Grandpa's Cthulhu story on the grounds that it was too slow and obscure for his zippy morons. But I guess I'll send along his note and let you see for yourself. Um, I think it wasn't changed that much. I, I, I heard somewhere that he just sort of resubmitted these with maybe a little new retyped or something and then they'd get accepted so um um great story great story we'll look at that soon now he talks about some other writers here that he's uh engaged in. i think long met, wanted to kind of pick his brain about uh theodore dreiser in fact and lovecraft says he doesn't really like theodore dreiser that much and this opens up into a very fascinating conversation about class which i think we should should dwell with um, now, Dreiser, of course, is kind of an American naturalist, very interested, very much part of the progressive era, interested in social issues. This is not the kind of thing Lovecraft dealt with directly. I, I think obliquely he's very interested in class and talks about class quite a lot, but he didn't like, like books about class or, or novels that kind of had that social agenda. I, I think that's just not his style. I think it's also part of his conservatism that he, he really didn't want to face uh, these aspects of life too directly. But he does 
take him. I don't know how much of Dreiser that Lovecraft read. I, I haven't. I didn't see any other mentions to him having read Dreiser, but uh, that's his misfortune if he didn't. He says he doesn't understand the undercurrents of certain heavy, mediocre characters, and since such characters are very numerous in life. One may say that he has an eminently sound and workable respect of the life itself. He's a genuine realist who can manage to give a certain dramatic march to the melange sordidness in everyday existence. And this being the case, it's useful to deny him the title of artist, even though his use of language is the very near dear of clumsiness. Um, and he says, I can't really become interested in his, quote, painful photographs. He's using the term photographs to speak to his realism here. Um, and this is what leads into the discussion of class. He says, we know that such things are. We recognize the touch of the comprehending analyst and delineator. But after all, we soon come to ask ourselves, what the hell of it? The amount of real interest in the draggled flounderings of the muddled lower middle class minds and the toils of social inhibition would seem to me definitely limited. For a while, it may symbolize the writhings of man and the clutch of the infinite. But after the novel, novelty of the analogy has worn off, one loses patient with the spectacle of sheer stupid ox-like misery. Um, now, I don't share this view with Lovecraft. I actually find the realist progressive era writing fascinating. I love London, Dreiser, all these, uh, Norris in particular. And there is a lot of pathos about class and suffering in those. Um, you know, Lovecraft doesn't want to have much to do with that. I think he doesn't think much of the lower classes, obviously. Uh, he says, this simple peasant sympathy and universal pity stuff will do for adolescents and Slavs, but simply cannot mean a tremendous lot to the Kelter Teutons who have looked into the enchanted forest or heard strange music on the wrath of the dark of the moon. Um, he prefers cosmic horror, I think, and he doesn't seem the mundane, brutal brutality of everyday existence is not of interest. He's not denying it exists. He just doesn't find it liter in, in a literary sense very interesting. All right. Uh, good letter, though. Kind of a, a interesting one, in, especially in this discussion of class. Next, we have another letter to Long. Uh, same day. It's, it's dated the same day. So he wrote two letters to Long on the same day. Uh, this one's quite a bit longer. Uh, yeah, something like almost 10 pages in the book uh, of the selected letters. Uh, but... The reason it's a different letter is I think it's dealing with different topics. or Maybe it's a response to a different letter by Long. Um, it's about one of his excursions. And therefore, when he goes on these excursions, he often talks about family history. And so this is a letter to go to for some of his views on, on, um, on his own family history. I, I think these are kind of nice to read. I, I don't know so much what to say about them. Um, you know, I think there's the, is the, the kind of the gothic reality of his family, this kind of a family in decline and kind of these antiquarian voyages, journeys into these different towns in New England would allow him to kind of experience this family history and think back on it and, and think about this decline. Um, he talks a lot here about the family connection to, um, to sort of English towns and English architecture. Let me find a reference to this here. Um, the house of Casey was established by the patriarchal Narsagat County, where large slaveholdering was the rule and was connected with the great Newport House of Walton, which gave the, gave the province three royal governors and some spectacular privateer captains. The marriage of James T. 
Tyler to Casey gives us an interesting link to the Newport Tories, God Save the King. I told my aunt upon reaching home that she had certainly chosen an ideal spot to be born in. So he's kind of connected to this elite uh, New England history, but also tied to the slave trade and slave to tied to that, that aspect of, of life there. Um, quite a lot here about his own English ancestors as well. It's just a really uh, important letter if you want to, to think about Lovecraft's attitude towards his own past and his personal relationship with England and his family history in, in New England on that um, on that mother's side that's where he has a more uh, that's where he has a deeper history as his father's side came later to the New World through Canada you know and had a more a less less glorious and less deep history I think his mother's side goes back basically to the to the Puritans so a lot of his Exploration of family history are, are interested in the mother's side, obviously. So it's a long letter, but lots of really great stuff in here just about family history. And if you're interested in that aspect of Lovecraft's life, I think this is a good letter to go to. So it's October 26th, 1926. It's also not extremely heavily edited, it seems. We get like the bulk of the letter here in the selected letters. We don't get that as often as maybe we would like. Um, the next one, much briefer, uh, is again to Clark Ashton Smith, October 29, 1926. And mostly this is about uh, Wandry and his hope that Wandry can be published. It's his praising for his, his work. So he's still trying to, trying to um, get these two guys together in some way. All right, next we have a letter to Wilfred Blanche Tallman, uh, dated October 31st, 1926. Mo you know, as I talked about in the last episode, around this time, Lovecraft was rewriting and revising an, a story called Two Black Bottles for Tallman, and, and that is eventually published. So Lovecraft is discussing with him his writing style, and he thinks... You know, what he says here is important because it helps us think about Lovecraft's own approach to writing of course. And he says here that Tallman is a bit too focused on plot. Lovecraft says he prefers a more limited plot, saying, I, for instance, have an absolute minimum of plot in the formal academic sense and depend almost entirely on atmosphere. But in the end, atmosphere repays cultivation because the final criteria of convincingness or unconvincingness of any tale whose major appeal is the imagination. So he says for imaginative fiction, for the weird tale, atmosphere um, setting the mood is all better and I, and I think he's still getting a lot of this from Poe and Poe's effort to kind of have that centering of his stories on effect uh, one great effect I think Lovecraft's later stories do you know have more plot they're a little more worldly they're more more epic so Lovecraft seems to change his opinion a little bit on this and, and but his tales of this time still tend to be more focus on mood I think uh, especially his early stuff did that um, what's next uh, next is Clark Ashton Smith November 16th 1926 um, kind of more about writing and writing his, his attitude towards literature and what he likes um, you know his dislike of romanticism is emphasized here uh, his preference for Dunsany Lord Dunsany's fantasy um, you know, the, he thinks there's some truth once you kind of escape 
the pretense of being in the real world. That's what he likes about Dunsany. That if you if you uh, if you have fiction set in the real world, um, you're kind of clouded, I guess, by that that realism. But if you can be totally fantastic, you get to more a more deeper emotional truth. Uh, what he says about this specifically is. There is something to me puerile in devising a sort of conventionalized variant of life with spurious and artificial thoughts and feelings then getting maudlin and excited and effusive over it. I think this is a criticism like back to the Dreiser stuff and the, the progressive era realists and naturalists. But Lovecraft goes on. But fantasy is something altogether different. Here we have an art based on the imaginative life of the human mind, frankly recognized as such, and in its way as natural and scientific as truly related to natural psychological processes as the starkest photographic realism. And he says, Dunsey does this in his writing and you do it in your painting. So he also throws in a praise for, for Smith's work. All right. That's a, good, that's a nice little letter on his literary tastes. Um, next we have James F. Morton, November 17th, 1926. Now we get more on Lovecraft's literary tastes, but he kind of moves this into a conversation about class, about race stock, about kind of culture as a product of class. And, you know, as I said before, like he's maybe not as overtly racist when he writes to Morton because Morton maybe confronts him on this more directly. But there are letters in which he does still express his, some of his prejudices here. And I think this is a good example of that. Um, where he kind of uses the concept, the, the, a discussion about literary taste to kind of jam in uh, uh, an opinion about, about race. He says, only a hyper-rational or hyper-aesthetic standard of classicism could demand a direct and absolute use for every, anything, everything. Architects frowned at needless or ornament, Yet the triplets of the very simplest order are mere fake representations of the ends of beams no longer used. None of this damn detail is worth bothering about. The only thing in the cosmos approaching a value is pleasant traditional association. Association is the real test. The degree of a thing's absorption into the imaginative life of a given race, stock, or cultural stream. But of course there are mildly amusing differences in degrees in the extravagance and far-fetchedness of sundry associated innovations. Taste is the sole criterion, and gentlemen don't bother with extreme cruelty, crudities like the skeleton or reverse caps. Um, and what he's getting at here, I think, is something, I don't know if I talked about it yet on this podcast, but it's certainly in his letter somewhere, where he goes on a longer rant about like, clothing and style and class, where he, he thinks like new fashion, he's kind of ranting about new fashions, and he thinks new fashions are kind of disgusting, actually. Because they they lack any kind of connection to to a real past. I'm presuming he doesn't have a problem with like the powdered wigs and preposterous clothing of 18th century England, because that would have been rooted in in kind of the culture association, as he said. But when he sees like new fashions, he thinks it's just kind of working class people playing around with different clothing. I think he's kind of inconsistent here. I think he doesn't really understand how fashionable like. 18th century clothes or Roman clothes was. I mean, you look at the Roman toga stuff, that was all just fashion of the time, wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't somehow deeply connected to the tradition. And, and, that, and at the same time, fashionable clothes 
worn by younger people might have its own history and tradition. It's just Lovecraft is a little too lazy to actually um, get into this. Uh, instead, we end up with this rant about the rabble and their, their closings. He writes, however, the rabble may all go to hell uniformly crowned in such regalia for all it matters to anyone who is anybody. I don't know. I think that like, certain things are okay to wear if you're a certain class is what's kind of bothersome about this letter. But nevertheless, I think it's, it's kind of significant in how we in kind of look, give us a little bit of a window into Lovecraft's view about this. Um, the next letter, also to Morton, dated uh, a week later or so, also November 26. It's pretty short. The selection we have here, anyways, is pretty short. Just about his neglected telescope. And we saw a reference uh, a little bit earlier about him finally buying another astronomy book. He's, he's kind of missing that, that aspect of his, of his amateur astronomy work, I guess. Uh, next letter, also to Morton. This one, three days after the, the short little note about his telescope. Um, this one is about uh, uh, Wis the Wissickim. He says, it's the good old Wissickim. And he says, ah, you're not going to find anything in New Jersey to quite match uh, the beauty of this place. Like a primeval forest is what he's... So I, I think he was like off in the, you know, in the backcountry or he's talking about it kind of competing with Morton about uh, the sights and, and, and scenery of New Jersey versus New England. He does talk a little bit here about engaging in a little bit of rock collecting as well. So this is a nice little... Um, Playful letter, just talking about his experiences with uh, with, uh, with the countryside, with the, the, the rural areas of, of New England, and a little bit of competition with a friend. Now, the next one is really fun, again, to, to uh, Morton. Uh, this one's dated December 26th. Now, this is a great letter, because um, he read an article about cats, um, and he got kind of triggered by this article about cats, and he went, talks about it with, with, um, with Morton. Um, and he's kind of he compares this article to kind of a pseudoscience. Um, he says, as a matter of fact, most attempts to classify dog and cat lovers exactly according to social and philosophical standing must necessarily fail because of the essential complexity of the human mind. End quote. Now here I don't disagree with. I think. You know, the people who say they're dog people and cat people, you know, there might be some truth to that, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not convinced, you know, the idea that people with cats have higher IQs or, or whatever. I don't know. I, I like cats, so, so maybe it's true. But I won't, I won't stand by in that. So, you know, this is, you find this stuff online, of course, all these, these articles about cat people, dog people, and, and all that. Cat lovers stroking their own uh, ego, I guess. Um, but he's got some interesting points here, though. Um, he does so say that people who prefer cats are more of, of aesthetic. They have more of an aesthetic attitude. Uh, quote, gentlemen, respect a cat for its independence, aloofness, its uh, sufficiency and coolness. That's what he said. He really likes the cat principally because of its peerless beauty and the superior gentleness and cleanness of its habits as compared with those of the noisy, smelly, poly, slobbering, messy dog. So despite starting the letter saying, you know, this attempt to kind of define 
dog eat people and cat people is kind of pseudoscience nonsense and then he goes and proceeds to do just that he can't even resist a cat lover as he is uh, he he thinks the cat appeals to people of imagination but then he says the problem is you can't really use psychology to explain the appeal of cats it's an aesthetic thing right so that might be a difference without a, a, a true distinction or a distinction without a difference I don't know but it's a fun little letter in which we get to see Lovecraft being a cat person and defending his interest in cats while also kind of critiquing a, a popular article uh, talking about cat people and dog people back in the in the 1920s all right so that was a bunch of letters to Morton one after another uh, next uh, is a December letter to August Durlith. Um, what is this one about? Well, he talks about some of his writing, basically. That's what this is about. So this is here because it's an update on his, on his writing at the time and some of his publication uh, schemes. Basically, two things are mentioned here. One is an article that, or a story that would be published, which is Strange High House on the Mist. Um, which is a really good story. That might actually be the second story he mentioned and previously to Smith, where he said he wrote two, Cthulhu and this one. This might be the second one. And it is a really good story, which we'll talk about soon. Uh, he likes the strangeness, the antiquarian nature of the, of the story. But I think more importantly, maybe for Lovecraft fans, is how he mentions working on um, Kadath. Now, here's what I'm confused about. He says, I'm now on page 72 of my Dreamland fantasy. But in a letter we looked at last time, he mentions having two novel novellas, each over 100 pages. And I presume that was Kadath and the case of Charles Dexter Ward, because those were only two long works he wrote at that point. Because uh, he, he just finished typing up supernatural horror and literature, didn't want to type it up again. So he said, I'll ne probably never type up these two works because they're too long. Um, so I don't know if he was rewriting it or, or, or was that talking about a different work? I'm not sure. But anyway, he's working on the, on the dream quest of the unknown Kadath here. And he says, maybe it's got a little bit too much weird imagery, something that might be true. I think, I think it's just too thick. I think it's, it's a little too dense. I'll give you my feelings on unknown Kadath later. But ultimately, he just doubts he'll see it in print, so he doesn't give it too much. Too, he doesn't sweat it too much. He says, it will probably make about 100 pages a small book in all and has a very small likelihood of ever seeing the light of day in print. I dread the task of typing it so badly that I shall not attempt it until I read it aloud a few times. So that's that. Um, next letter, uh, Clark Ashton Smith. December 11th talks about the death of of a guy named Sterling so who's this Sterling I don't know to be honest an artist he says but it's a very just short note to at least the, the selected part of the letter here is only a small small little bit uh, talking about this so uh, should probably look up who he's talking about here um, but anyways moving on next we have Tallman uh, Tallman of course the one he wrote uh, two black bottles with December 19th, 1926, mostly about the dream of the quest of the unknown Kadath. Uh, he says, as for my novel, it's a picaresque chronicle of impossible adventures in dreamland and is composed under no illusion of professional acceptance. There's certainly nothing of popular or bestseller psychology in it, although in 
consonance with the mood in which it was conceived, it contains more of the naive fairyland wonder spirit than an actual Baudelairean decadence. Actually, it isn't much good, but forms useful practice for later and more authentic tips at the novel form. Um, yeah, I agree. It's not that good. But, uh, you know, Lovecraft had his toast about it. That's why he never published it during his, his lifetime. Um, then we have a letter to Derleth, uh, Christmas Day, 1926, um, where he's basically talking about some of his Dreamland stories. Um, kind of updating Derleth on, on these older stories he wrote that were kind of seen, are now seen as part of his Dreamland stories, specifically Polaris and Celeface. I've talked about both of those stories in this podcast before. And he basically says, well, you know, the one can't really be influenced by Dunsany. The other maybe, but I'll just leave it to others to judge whether, you know, he, he you know, I don't think he digs this literary crit criticism of, of that type uh, too much. He just kind of says, well, I'll leave it to others to say if it's influenced by it. But Selefis certainly is a post-Dunsany. Or, or so. It's a story in which Lovecraft wrote after he was influenced by Dunsany's work. All right, next letter. January 2nd, 1927, to uh, also to August Derleth, um, where he talks about modernism. This is maybe a more significant letter to maybe look at because he is complaining about modernism he does this a lot actually here he doesn't think much of ben hex eric dorn and t.s Eliot's the wasteland um, but he does say that these are a good place to go if you want to know where modernist poetry is he writes the keynote of our modern doctrine is the dissonance of ideas and the resolving of our cerebral contents into its actual chaotic components as distinguished from the conventional patterns visible on the outside. This is supposed to form a closer approach to reality, but I cannot see that it forms any sort of art at all. So that's his feeling about it. He says it's a dissolution of ideas and, and kind of forming a type of chaos. Um, but I don't know. Doesn't Lovecraft do the same at times? I don't know. I mean, isn't cosmic horror its own kind of part of the modernist tradition? Uh, I guess we'll leave it to others to decide. Uh, next to Derleth. Seem to, the editors here like to group together. The, these are all chronological, but they still seem to tend to group together to certain, certain recipients. Uh, here's another example. January 11th, 1927 to Derleth. Uh, doesn't like Tolstoy. Uh, he prefers Dostoevsky. He said, I read Anna Karina years ago, but I can't say I cared for that or anything of Tolstoy. To my mind, Tolstoy is sickeningly mawkish and sentimental. And then at the end of the letter, he says he prefers Dostoevsky. Too sentimental is his feeling of Tolstoy. So, I don't know. I don't have, a, I don't have a, uh, any investment in that debate. So, whatever. Next, also to Derleth, January 20th. They must be going back and forth about writers and what writers you like and what writers are, are interest you because that's what these Lovecraft uh, responses seem to do. This time he talks about Wild. So he talked about modernism, then Russian writers, and now he's talking about Oscar Wilde. A lot of back and forth. That's why they're kind of grouped together here. Um, he says Oscar Wilde's like a moment in, in, in literary history, but 
he's not great himself. He's just a reflective of a moment. That might be true. Um, he does. He he appreciates, I guess, Oscar Wilde's reaction to Victorian "quote unquote" tastelessness. Um, but he was just too limited to be good. And he actually defends, you know, Lovecraft's not known to make too many like political statements like this on issues like this. I think, but he does defend Wilde uh, from being imprisoned. I uh, said, of course, Wilde's imprisonment was a mistake, for no good is ever accomplished by arousing dramatic publicity over mere degradation and degeneracy, which calls for the alienist rather than the policeman. So he's not saying, you know, that there might not be something messed up in, in Wilde's mind. He just doesn't think he should be arrested for it. So it's a little bit of a defense for, for, for Wilde on that. By and large... I mean, I think he, he has a little bit more interest in Wilde in general as someone who's reacting to this Victorian um, culture, which he didn't think much of. Um, next letter is to Clark Ashton Smith, uh, January 21st, 1927. Uh, a little bit more on Wandry, still trying to connect these two people together, and a little bit more on completing the dream quest of the unknown Kadath. So I, now I really want to know what that other long novella he mentioned in the previous letter was. One definitely is the case of Charles Dexter Ward. But there's nothing else at the time that he wrote that set that long. Maybe someone out there knows. You can tell me. But he's completed Kadath, and he, the conclusion he comes from the work on the Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath is that shorter fiction is better. So I guess that's it for today. There's not too much to say in these letters. These letters were kind of uh, not as interesting. The next batch, I think we'll have a little bit more to say about uh, some of Lovecraft's philosophy and, and attitudes. A few nice gems in here, though. I think like the antiquarian visits to the, to the countryside are, are interesting. Some of his ideas about modern writing, too, are perhaps relevant to, to some of you listeners. So uh, I guess that's it for now. I will... See you next time, uh, where we'll look at the letters from, from later 1927, I guess. Um, see you then.